I was sitting with my friend Arthur Kornblum in a restaurant. It was a horn and dotted cafeteria. And this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. And it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. Welcome, everybody, to our brand new uh, sermon series, uh, The Meaning of Intimacy. And as I've been uh, preparing for this series, the thought went through my mind, why did I choose and agree to do this? And the more I study it, the more I realize it is necessary because um, for some reason as Christians and as a church, we feel like we're not allowed to talk about the area of sexuality, that the culture has a right to, but we don't, and that's not... That's not correct. We also have a right to speak about it, but to speak about it in truth and in love as well. So I want to kind of lay down a little bit of groundwork as we go through this series. There are perhaps some of you here or watching online that are going to not necessarily agree with everything I'll say. You may even struggle with what the scriptures say, and I want you to know that's obviously permissible and that's your right, and I hope you'll hear it all the way through and then think about it again. It's important for us to not come at truth from our feelings or our experiences, but to come at truth from truth itself, so keep that in mind. There's some of you who will hear this and it's going to make you feel guilty or perhaps bring some shame into your life because this is an area of your life that you've not really been honoring God with, and I want you to know that with God there's grace, there's forgiveness, and there's a new day start, and that's the good news about our God. You don't have to stay in guilt and in shame. For some of you, this will be a painful series because your innocence was stolen from you, perhaps at a young age because of abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, If that's the case, I know how you feel. I know the struggles that can put in your life. I know what that can lead to in your life. And for you and for me, there's God's grace that's available to us, and in some instances, his forgiveness if needed as well. And for many, I hope, of you, this is an area that you've been working on in your life and your parenting, and uh, you have maintained and are advocating for, you know, spiritual purity, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you to keep on being strong. That's one thing I wanted to lay out for our series. Second thing I want to lay out for our series is a misunderstanding that I think a lot of uh, Christians especially have. You know, if somebody mentions the term sexual revolution, Oftentimes, people will say, oh, yeah, that's that thing that happened in the 1960s, and that's incorrect. The first true sexual revolution happened when God gave Moses the Torah, the law. What a lot of us don't realize is that after Adam and Eve sinned, from that moment on, humanity began to rebel against God. And one of the areas they were most rebellious in was this area of sexuality, that in those days, there was, no, uh, there was no categories for sexuality. So everybody did was right in their sight. Men were very predatorial in their sexuality. Women were very passive and, and were aggressed often by men. It made its way into their religion, the sexualization of their gods. 
It was God who intervened with the Torah, with the law, and said that, as one rabbi put it, the sexual genie must be contained within the lamp of marriage. And that Orthodox Judaism, the law, and then later Christianity were the ones that were responsible for the message of God that marriage belongs, that uh, sexuality belongs within the confines of marriage between a husband and wife, and that's how we define marriage. Now, you can disagree with that, and that's your prerogative, but that's where we settle out with the Bible. So what we see and what we experience today is nothing new. It is not a liberation from a world that's been dominated by Judeo-Christian ethic. It is simply going back to what humanity was and how humanity behaved before that point in time. What I would challenge you historically to come to grips with is that if it was not for Judeo-Christian ethic in regards to sexuality, Western culture would never have come to be. Where sexual sin without restraint destroys societies. And the greatest destruction often at the hands of men. We see that today in the news and the kinds of things that are happening. So with those things said, we're going to take the next several weeks to talk about this hot potato. So I thought, let's play hot potato. Remember that game? You pass it along, and hopefully the buzzer doesn't sound when it's in your hands. So I'm going to ask the ushers in the balcony on the floor. They got some potatoes to pass out. Your job is to keep it going, because whoever gets stuck with it has to come up here and sing the Song of Solomon with me today. (laughs) So don't get stuck with a potato. All right? Ready? Go. Now, as you're doing that, the reason I call it a hot potato is the church hasn't quite known what to do with a particular book in the Bible. The balcony, you guys have your taters up there? All right? Pass them around. Uh, Call the Song of Solomon. What do we do with that book? And so a guy by the name of St. Augustine came along and he said, let's allegorize the book. Let's just say it's really a story and a picture of Christ's love for the church and the love of the church for Christ. Well, how many of you, are you potatoes passing? Or you want to sing a song? How many of you have read the Song of Solomon? Let me see your hands. All right? Would you agree with me? It's even more awkward and embarrassing to try to teach it as an allegory of Christ's love to the church with the kind of language and intimacy that's used there. Why can't we just accept the fact that it is God's choice to have this shared with us as a portrayal of how he has always intended the gift of sex which he gave to be practiced within the boundaries of marriage. All right. <clears throat> Who's got the potatoes? Let me, see your, let me see your potato. All right. Guess what? I am not going to let you come up here and waste my preaching time by singing. All right, you can take the potato home for lunch, all right? Yours to enjoy. See, now it's, how many of you now will admit you had the potato? Yeah, all right? And that's a big, big potato we gave you, all right. So what do we do with the Song of Solomon, the most intimate book in the Bible? Some say that the Song of Solomon was written at a time when in that culture, the pagan culture, the culture outside of Judaism was was being written in very homoerotic terms. And so this is like God saying, nope, I'm going to have have sexuality written in the terms that I intended it uh, to be practiced and and to enjoy. And it is part of what we call wisdom literature. 
And the books of wisdom literature in the Bible are Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Well, what does that mean? Ray Steadman, who passed away many years ago, put it well in this phrase. He said, if the book of Job is the crying of man's spirit, remember Job deals with suffering, and Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes is the cry of the soul, Psalms is the heart, Proverbs is the will, Ecclesiastes is the mind, the Song of Solomon is preeminently the cry of the body in its essential yearning. And I added, for intimacy, for intimacy. And so that's what this book is ultimately about. So let's take a look at it. And the, way, the place where we begin is at the end in chapter eight, a flashback that is shared with us by the woman, the Shulamite she's known as, regards the relationship to King Solomon. So why don't you turn to Song of uh, Songs, chapter eight and verse eight. And by the way, I advise people who are wondering, should my kids attend this, uh, read through the Song of Solomon, that will help you know uh, how to come at that and answer that question. So uh, Song of Songs, chapter eight, I wanna start reading at verse eight. The woman is speaking here and she's talking about her childhood and she's using the voice of her brothers. Thank God for brothers. Verse eight, we have a little sister and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. I like these brothers. They're very concerned for their little sister. And they, in essence, are saying, if our sister, as a pre-adolescent and then as an adolescent, as she develops, as she grows, as she matures, if she'll be like a wall, if she'll fend off boys, men, aggressors, we're gonna bless her. But if she's an open door, that is, if she is promiscuous, we're going to build a wall around her because we want to protect her. Now, when you hear those words put that way, it's possible that you might read those and say, ah, it sounds so repressive. It sounds so old-fashioned. It just sounds so dominating. There we go again with male chauvinism. And the men, you know, are going to step in and, you know, where's the, you know, where's the liberty? Where's the right of a woman to be a woman? Well, you may not like the metaphor. You gotta understand its culture and its time, right? But the point is still very important. All of us, all of us make decisions in life based on the influences of others. And nowhere is this more true than in the area of sexuality. You don't just make up your own mind in regards to the area of sexuality. Your sons, your daughters, they don't just form their own opinion about it. It is formed and influenced by many others. Your own opinion about it is informed by others, by experiences of others, by what you hear, by what you see. So the question becomes this, especially as parents, and I'm talking a lot here to parents, but also to, to single adults. I mean, you can apply this all the way across the board. Just because you're married doesn't mean you don't face uh, temptation, sexual temptation. But just for a moment to parents in particular, who's influencing your children? Your, your kids, your grandkids that you're raising. You know, the people who most influence us are the people we want to be accepted by. Have you ever noticed that? I allow the people to influence me whose tribe I want to be a part of. 
Therefore, the question becomes, who is it that our sons and our daughters, our brothers and our sisters, who is it that I as a single person, who do I want to be accepted by? What group do I want to belong to? And there's always a cost to belong to a group. There is. And the cost is I probably have to behave as that group. So in our culture today, part of the cost is if you want to be part of our group, you must be sexually active. And by the way, you ask our our youth pastors, our student pastors, they'll tell you that our kids, even in fifth and sixth grade, are facing pressure in this way in the culture. I was reading an article written by an expert in this area in psychology today, and uh, he was using the movie that came out years ago called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which is about a man who is, I think he's 40, I haven't seen the movie, and um, he has uh, still kept his virginity, and it leaks out to his friends, and when they find out, they're appalled. They're embarrassed for him, and so they, they begin, you know, to try to help him get past all of that and to, and to experience life as, as it should be experienced. And the writer says this, and I want to read to you his article. It's very short. He said, the 40-year-old virgin is played for laughs, but for real older virgins, generally defined as people who have not had intercourse by age 25, it probably elicits tears. The real world of older virgins is much different from the one depicted in the film. It's a world of shame and isolation, a world where people feel seriously stuck, handicapped, and not part of the adult world. Wow. Does that sound like peer pressure? And if you really want to be part of the adult world, if you really want to fit in, if you don't want to deal with guilt and shame because you kept your virginity, you got to give it up. And by the way, if you haven't given it up by the age, by the time you're age 25, oh, you're old. I think that's still really young. But the world says you're really old. If you haven't sold out by then, if you haven't given up your body by then, what's wrong with you? Come on, get with it. And that's the message your kids, our sons, our daughters, they hear all the time. It's just, it's just constant drone coming to their minds and their ears. And as single adults, maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it is awkward. And man, maybe you are belittled if you've kept your virginity by, by others. And there's a lot of pressure there. Or maybe you lost it and you're trying to now honor God by, by maintaining purity. And you just feel that pressure all the time. That's why we've got to go all the way back and say, when do we start teaching and talking about this issue, this topic, and making sure we get it straight in our minds and our hearts? And the answer to this question is, when our children are young. That's where the story starts, and we'll be progressing through it. So we're going to look at a couple of different principles, and the first one, based on our story so far, is simply this, that when love is immature, it needs protection. And that's what these brothers are saying. They say, look, you know, our, our sister, her breasts are not yet grown. She's, she's not even in adolescence yet. What are we going to do to protect her? What are we going to, to, to instill integrity in her to make sure that when she's spoken for, that, that uh, she's, she's a virgin? That's, that's what they're discussing right there. And the question is the same for you as parents and for us as a church, as a community, how do we help each other? How do we influence each other in this area of sexuality? How do we protect each other, young and old alike? Well, one of the first steps is this. Make sure that those you're influencing, make sure that you understand sexuality from God's perspective, not the peers, media, or culture's viewpoint. 
because the culture, the media, and their peers may not represent God's perspective. So we're gonna do a little poll. I want you to be honest. There's nothing shameful in this poll. How many of you heard about the birds and the bees? And I can't raise my hand because my parents never said anything to me about it. How many of you heard about the birds and the bees from your parents? Let me see your hands, all right? Right, several hands went up. Whole lot of hands didn't go up. So here's the question. If I don't hear about it from my parents, who am I hearing it from? Who am I hearing it from? And are they transmitting to me a biblical perspective? It's our job to pass that along. What does that mean? It means that appropriately you begin to talk to your children about it. Now, I'm not advocating that you grab your fifth grader today and have a whole talk and make him or her throw up. All right? But I am advocating that from the moment they've been conceived or the moment they are conceived, you begin praying for their, their integrity, praying for their purity, praying for their morality. As they, as their little ones, begin talking to them about who God is and who they are. Begin talking about how God created them. Begin talking about how special and wonderful their bodies are and that their bodies are, are for him and to be used for his glory. And as they get older and older and, and you can discuss more and more detail to them, you, you lay it out, you make it a continual conversation with them so that they never hear it from somebody else. So that when they finally hear it from a peer or, or uh, on television or from you know, some other individual or at an overnight someplace, they can say, oh, I already know about that stuff. And what you're saying is wrong. Let's go talk to my parents. They'll set you straight. That's what you want, right? You want them to be confident. They, you want them to be able to go, I'm not curious about that. I've heard it all already. And if you really want to know more about it, let's go talk to my mom and dad. They seem to be experts. And what a way to handle that situation, right? So my question is, what are you doing to help your child understand their sexuality from a biblical perspective, which means more than just the talk, what do you talk about after the talk? Second point, set the boundaries, parents. And, and listen, as adults, whether you're married or single, set the boundaries for yourself. Set the boundaries for your marriage. Set the boundary for yourself as a single adult. Stay in the boundaries, you'll do much better. Live out of the boundaries, you're at risk. In particular, as parents, how should we set the boundary for our kids and our grandkids? How should we influence them? Well, number one, set the boundaries with regards to what they see. The eye gate is huge. Especially for guys, we'll talk about this in a minute, especially for guys who visually, visually, that is, that is where it all starts for a guy. What are they seeing? Set the boundaries with what they're reading. Set the boundaries for where they are on the internet. Set the boundaries for what they're listening to in terms of music and lyrics and things like that because all of those are, are means or conduits, uh, uh, conduits of, of the culture's perspective. And you gotta help your kids filter that and understand that. And what age do you just stop it? And one of the areas that there's a lot of study going on, and not by Christians necessarily, is the whole area of video gaming, which is such a powerful thing in the culture today, especially amongst young people and even young adults. It has been proven by researchers who are not Christians that 
often video gaming is an onboard ramp into pornography, and pornography is a huge problem in our culture and within the church as well. So what kind of video games are my kids playing? What are the links to those games? Where does that take them? What are their characters described as? How are they dressed? How do they behave each other toward each other? Video games place off of helping kids get out of boredom. The problem is the more you play that game, it's easy to get bored, so they have to heighten it. And there's no, there's, you know, one of the ways you heighten the, the, the tension and the novelty of it is you include sexuality in it. Because that's such a powerful, potent part of our lives. Build those boundaries. In terms of relationships, you gotta decide when am I gonna let my kids start to date? In our home, it wasn't until you're 17 and then only in a group date, which sounds very old fashioned, doesn't it? But I told my daughter especially, I said, anybody who wants to date you has to have my permission. When she was younger, she laughed at me. When she, for, when she began dating in her 20s, she honored that. And then her husband who married her asked for permission to marry her and my respect for him went way up. Don't be afraid to put the boundaries down. You've heard this before. I'll say it again. As a parent, your job is not to be your child's best friend. You may be their best enemy for a while. (laughs) All right? But your job is not not necessarily to be their best friend. Love them. Don't be be mean and nasty. But you got to hold, you got to stand on the truth in a loving and gracious way. Which leads me then to number three. And this is where some of you aren't going to like me. All right? Don't advertise. Don't advertise. What do I mean by that? All right? When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, all right? God said to Adam, name all the animals, and Adam named the animals, and none was, was found suitable for him. Remember that? And so God caused the sleep to fall upon him. God takes the rib out. God, God creates this woman who is visually stunning. And God put hormones in Adam. And so when God brought the woman to the man in the Hebrew, I've talked to you about this before. We don't get the nuance. Let's see how well you remember my sermons, all right? When, when Adam saw Eve in the Hebrew, it was the equivalent of him saying what? Wow. <laughs> 8.30 did way better than you, all right? All right? Wow. Guys, let me hear it. Wow. All right? When a guy, when a guy sees a woman and sees a woman and, and sees her in terms of her dress, how provocative she looks, it elicits attention from the guy. Now, no guy ever has the right to act on that. No guy ever has the right to take advantage of a woman. I don't care how provocatively she's dressed, you keep your hands to yourself. You keep your life to yourself. Guys, we need, to treat our, we need to teach our sons that. There's never an excuse for it. Never. You're responsible for yourself. But at the same time, the Bible says to us, don't cause a brother or sister to stumble. So I'm not talking about the outside world. I'm talking to believers at this point, right? As believers, parents, raising our sons and our daughters, especially our daughters, knowing how visually stimulated guys are, we got to make sure our daughters don't send the wrong message. Because guys' radar is way out there. Even, even good godly guys, it's, it's, it's a challenge. See, God intended it for, to, to be used within marriage, but, you know, we, we rebelled against God and now it's misused everywhere else. And guys become predatorial with it. Let me, let me use the analogy differently. It's called my three bears analogy. You go camping in the North Woods, where, they, where there are bears, what do they tell you? Don't leave the sweets out of the picnic table, Right? 
don't eat food out there because bears, bears are always looking, always looking. It's just they're wired. They're always looking, always sniffing. Where, where are the sweets? So if you leave the sweets out, if you leave the food out on the picnic table, bears are dumb, incredibly dumb. They see that as an invitation from you. Look at those nice people. They want me to eat their food. How nice of them. And they invite themselves over and they will take what's left out for them. I'm telling you, ladies, listen. Guys are dumb. Sorry, guys. All right? We think with our, you know, we think with our eye. We let our eyes lead us. And, and not every guy is a good Christian guy who's going to have really good, you know, morals and discipline in his life. And so when you, when you give peaks, so to speak, ladies, when you dress in a way that's revealing, whether it's tight or whatever it is, all right, guys' attention go there. Guys' attention go there. And it's really hard for guys, you know, to say, no, stop. No, not interested in the picnic. Please. I prefer the, I prefer berries in the bushes. Right? It's really hard for them to do that. Let me, put it, let me come in at a different angle, and I don't want to insult any mothers, any daughters here. Uh, that's not my intention. I'm, I'm actually taking this from a woman I heard speak who's a bit of an expert in this. Her name's Alison Armstrong. She says that one of the problems that, that women have is that they think that men think like them. Ladies, can I just reveal something to you maybe very profound for you? Men do not think like women, so stop thinking that men do. We don't. We don't think like you. Now, my wife, Marcia, said, I want you to talk about this today. Because she's done a lot of teaching training in this area with kids. And she said, you know, one of the biggest mistakes mothers make is not to invite dad or the father or the older brother to speak into how their daughter or sister is going to dress. Because what do men know, Right? Hey, men know a lot. They're bears. And your husband ought to have a lot of say. And you guys, let me ask you a question. You see the way your daughter dresses. If it makes you uncomfortable, put yourself in the position of another guy. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, for crying out loud, speak up. Here's, here's how it goes with women, right? I'm told. I've observed, right? You know, mother's daughters, they go out to buy an outfit or a single woman goes out to buy an outfit with her friends and it's all about, how's this look? You know, does it fit right? I like this bottom, I like this top. Oh, look at this purse, it's accessorizing her girlfriends and the mother's going, that looks so cute on you, it looks so darling on you. You have such a wonderful little figure. You should show that off, make all the girls jealous. Oh, you look wonderful today. And that shade of lipstick, I mean, everything, you are so put together. I have never heard a group of guys in a locker room. <laughs> never a group of guys in the locker room say, did you see her? That purse. Wow, is that accessorized, that outfit? And, and that top and those leggings that aren't covered up. I mean, boy, can she match colors. Wow, never heard it, never heard it. Ladies, guys don't think that way. Listen, Guys go past it. The more that's revealed, the more they want to see and their imaginations get engaged. Ask a guy if he'll be honest with you. And that's the truth. So as you're protecting your daughter, your sister, as you're protecting yourself, your girlfriends, why, why would you want in any way to send the wrong message, especially to a guy who doesn't have any morals or discipline 
and has become a predator in that case. No excuses for guys that do. No excuses. But listen, ladies, don't make it harder for yourselves or for them, especially within the community of believers, right? There's some books I want to recommend to you. We'll put it on our website later on. We're putting together a bibliography for you. But one of them is by Shanti Feldhan, F-E-L-D-H-A-H-N. It's called For Young Women Only. I want to encourage you moms to get this, get it for your young ladies to read, all right? What you... what. You need to know about how guys think. Very helpful book. Short, very good, based on a lot of survey research material. All right? Second book I recommend to you is for parents only. All right? That book is something that you need to get. Same author, Feldhan. The last book is by her husband, Eric Feldhan, or, uh, Jeff Feldhan, and it's about for young men only. And the subtitle, A Guy's Guide to the Alien Gender. All right? So very helpful tools and books to have will add more as you move forward. Now, let's go to another principle, all right? And that is we need to learn to pray, okay? And pray our hearts out for our kids and our friends and our brothers and our sisters and our husbands and our wives. Pray our hearts out. Pray that God would protect. Pray that God would convict. Pray that God would keep Keep us, keep them aligned with this word and to want to honor God with their very being. There's hardly a day, I don't think there's a day that goes by I don't pray for my family and pray particularly in this area of purity for my sons and, or, and for my daughter and their, and their spouses, for my grandkids, for my wife, for my own marriage. It's power in prayer. Bear down in prayer about these things. Well, how did this gal, how does she, how does she turn out? Let's, let's look and see. Go back to um, the principle I want to bring out here. The next slide. All right? When love is mature, it possesses dignity. Let me show you what I mean. Let's come back to her and let's see uh, what she has to say here. In verse 10, she says, I am a wall. My breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes, talking about Solomon, like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruit. So her story is a great story. It's a good news story. You come back to the passage of scripture, and she's now writing years later, and she says, I'm a wall. I wish more young women were proud to say that. I'm a wall. I have kept, I've kept my virginity. I have, I have respected myself, and more importantly, I've respected God's design. I'm not a door. I have, I have withstood. And she has power, doesn't she? What's her power, lady? Ladies, her power is her self-control. She says, and it's most important in verse 12, she says, my own vineyard is mine to give. It's not for anybody to take away. It belongs to me, and I will give it in its right time to the right person under God's sovereignty, under God's prescription. We'll see that later on as we move through the courtship into their marriage. I've, I've kept myself. I've, I've withheld myself. You say, man, that's so hard for me to hear, Pastor Dale, because I have not. Maybe you're a guy or a gal, and you didn't. Listen, I told you before, there's mercy and forgiveness by, with God. And you can have a new day start 
Rather than grieving what's lost, focus on today and, and living the life the way God wants you to live it today. Don't let the enemy beat you down with this. Don't give up and give in and say, this. there's no hope. I've already crossed the line. But if you haven't crossed the line, just make up your mind you're not going to cross the line. You're going to honor God. You're going to put him first and not yourself first. See, and that's one of the challenges that we face in this area of sexuality. It's so personal, so subjective. The temptation is, is, to, is to make it all about me and my feelings and what I want. And we live in the Western culture and society which says it's all about the individual. And it's all about me pleasing myself. And what area offers more temporary gratification in the area of sexuality? But we've got to get past that and understand and understand that this is about obeying God regardless of how I feel. You know, one of the tragic stories of the Bible is David and his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Remember that terrible story? I mean, it's, you talk about a stained, blood-stained, horrible story. He has her husband murdered after he finds out she's pregnant because of him and then takes her as his wife. It's terrible. And here's a man that was walking so close to God, wrote so many of the Psalms which just goes to remind everybody in this room, including me, the moment you think you're not vulnerable, you, got, you are very vulnerable. You gotta be on the lookout. And so when Nathan, God's prophet, goes to confront David, he says two things to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse nine, I think it is, in verse 14. First, Nathan says to him, representing the voice of God, he says to him, David, you have despised the word of God. And the second thing he says to him is you behave contemptuously towards God. What that means is you belittle God's holiness. So he's saying two things to him. Whatever reasoning you used to do what you did, to prey upon that woman, take advantage of her as the king, understand you despise the word of God and you belittle God's holiness. And that should have been your highest priority to honor God's word and to honor God's holiness. And I would suggest to you that that's true for all of us in every area of our lives, but especially in this area of sexuality. No matter what the culture says, no matter what I feel, no matter what my friends feel, no matter how people want to rewrite and redefine the Bible, can we wrap our minds and hearts around and agree that we will not despise the word of God? Listen carefully. Even when we don't like it, and sometimes, let's be honest with each other, we don't like what God says. How many of you always liked what your parents said? It's hard, right? But we choose in that moment to say, God, we are going, we're here to honor you. You are God. And I'm not going to let my feelings interfere. I'm going to go with what you have said. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to treat you as holy because ultimately that's what matters to God. That's what matters to God. This, is that what matters to you? Putting him first, honoring him, glorifying him. In your family, your marriage, in your singleness. That's what God wants for you. And that needs to be kind of the vision we get. You know, we sang that song, Be Thou My Vision. That, you know, that needs to be our vision. And it starts by just surrendering ourselves to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for your love and your grace. God, I want to pray and ask that you would help us 
to live lives where our hearts are fully surrendered to you. In all areas of our life, God, our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies, Lord, we want every part of us to be yielded and surrendered to you. Lord, I'm sure this is gonna spark some conversations with family, with spouses, with others, and I pray, Lord, that those conversations will move us towards you. And we'll move us toward not asking, what does the culture think? What do I think? But God, what do you think? And realizing, God, that you've laid out this, this gift for us to be enjoyed and experience the most holy and reverent way. And the world right now, Lord, needs that witness, and we want to be that witness for you. So, Father, speak into our hearts and speak into our lives. Help us as we move to this journey together, oh God, to find healing, to find forgiveness, and to find hope, and to find courage and strength. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. It's gonna be an exciting series, challenging, but exciting as well. I'm gonna ask you to stand right now, and I encourage you to come back next weekend when we talk about the secrets of attraction. I hope you know that God loves you today, and he cares about every facet an area of your life. If you'd like a pastor to speak with, Pastor Rich will be down at the front, several others of our prayer partners. God bless you. Have a safe and wonderful rest of the day.